Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I hit a wall. You know, raising money is not easy, but there was something else going on. I hit a wall, and it was a wall of depression, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And I felt like if something were to happen to me, this would all fall to pieces. Hello, friends, and welcome back to At the End of the Tunnel. In this episode, we're going to hear from a Detroit native turned Los Angeles casting director turned documentarian turned founder of a school for children. She's got such an amazing story. I don't want to give too much of it away, except to say that Tiffany Persons always knew that she wanted to make a difference in the world. And lucky for us, her career hopes of becoming a documentary filmmaker didn't quite turn out the way that she wanted. But in a strange twist of fate, it led her to start a nonprofit called Shine On Sierra Leone. What's that? Oh, it's just a school that she raised money for to build in a little village in East Africa, all while barely being able to pay her own rent back in Los Angeles. As you'll hear, Tiffany has an incredible tale of high hopes, followed by disappointment and divine timing and so much more. But first things first, let's start by talking about what it was like for Tiffany to be raised in the home of a Detroit numbers runner in the 1970s. Tiffany, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. As always, I like to start these conversations talking about childhood. Mm-hmm. Can you remember what your favorite toy or activity was as a child? You know what? I do know. It was actually playing dress up. And it would happen when there was Thanksgiving, a large gathering or family. And my cousins and I would get together and we would get play dress up, put makeup on, put our parents, our you know family's clothes on, and we would come down and do entertainment. We would do a dance routine that we would practice upstairs and get it all perfect, and then we'd come down and do our dance routine, and it was the fun. It was the most fun ever. That was my favorite, entertaining my family. <laughs> Obviously, you were decent at it because you would get some positive feedback from it. I'm of assuming. Course. Well, I mean, yeah, but honestly. You're a child, you know, just the <laughs> fact that you're down there doing the roll and doing the shake. They're just like, look at her. Right. So, yeah, it was great. And is Tiffany, is it a family name or how, how did you, how did you come across that name? Tiffany. Tiffany. My, my mother named me Tiffany after Tiffany's in New York City. She thought it was a beautiful name. She thought it was an incredible store and it had all, it had a class. And at 10 years old, when I was 10 years old, she took me to New York. And the idea was that she was going to take me to Tiffany's in New York and buy me a gift. 
And we walked in Tiffany's and it was also her first time walking in Tiffany and company. And we walk in and she looks at all the prices and like, you know, we pull out one bracelet and she's like, Ooh, that's a little bit, that's a little bit much. And then we pull out another bracelet. And the next thing you know, we basically couldn't afford anything in Tiffany. So I had to walk out without anything from Tiffany. Oh, I'll, I'll never forget that. I'll that, never forget that. It's funny because some people remember things because something really positive happened. But in this situation, you'll never forget it because you didn't get the thing you came for. Did you not grow up in a wealthy family or what was your background like? And where did you grow up? Quote, unquote, we had some money. My father was, quote, unquote, rich, not wealthy, but mm -hmm. rich mm -hmm. because he started the underground numbers game in Detroit, Michigan mm -hmm. and essentially was a hustler. And my mother was a hairdresser and a darn good one. She was amazing. So we did, but it, but my mother and father did not live together. Mm -hmm. And so our struggles were sometimes different than his. And yeah, money, it was times were challenging. We were living like middle class, but struggling to be that middle class. Right. Now, Detroit, your father, I remember Malcolm Little talking about numbers in his book, Autobiography of Malcolm X. Did you, do you know if your father had any contact with the man who became Malcolm X? <laughs> I don't know, but that is really interesting. I mean, we weren't in the same, you know, was he in Detroit? Yeah, he was in Detroit when he was doing all that. Oh, that is possible. Absolutely. Because I'm know, sure back then possible. Detroit was a very small community, especially the African-American community. Yes. Well, he was there in the sixth. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. It could be. It's possible. That would yeah, be really interesting. Because Mal Malcolm X was there in the 60s or the, the 50s and 60s. So it sounds like you, you had a happy childhood aside from the Tiffany's <laughs> incident. Yes, I had. And you know what? And honestly, that was fine. I was happy I was in New York. But I had a very happy childhood. It was happy. It was my parents loved me. My struggle during childhood was other children, especially other children that looked like me. Because my mother had taken me out of Detroit and we actually, she raised me in Southfield, my brother and I in Southfield, Michigan. And Southfield is a suburb right outside of Detroit. And we lived off of eight mile and eight mile is the demarcation between Detroit and the suburbs, which is the first suburb is Southfield. Okay. And so I lived just on the other side of eight mile and, you know, essentially I wanted to be like my cousins who lived deep in Detroit. And I felt like whether it was, I didn't talk black enough because they called me a white girl or my butt wasn't big enough in those Levi's, whatever it was, I just didn't feel like I truly fit in. And then, of course, I went to a private school where there was three to four black children in the classroom of 30 children. Right. And so I also felt out of the loop there and, and also did, like I didn't belong. And so I wanted to be blacker or I wanted to be white. And mm. that was that was my that was the plague of my childhood, just never feeling good in my body, never feeling in love with who I was. Did you feel any sense of connection to your African heritage at that time? Or? Absolutely not. 
Absolutely not. Are you kidding me? Because back if, if then people would tease you about like being ooh. an African booty scratcher and these kinds of things. I mean, you lit, how did that word, how did that actual phrase travel throughout the nation? How <laughs> do you know, know it too? Because that's what we would say. <laughs> the African booty scratcher. Exactly. That That's exactly what we would say. So no, absolutely. I didn't want to be African. And the, and the, those, those poor souls, the African children that would find themselves in our school. Oh man, I would feel for them. Hmm. You had Africans in your school. That, like one, you know, okay. like one would come, you know, like every now and again. Yeah. It's yeah. There would okay. be, be one and, and oh, that poor soul, they would get it worse than anyone. And what did you want to do when you quote unquote grew up back? back I wanted to be a nurse. I wanted to be a nurse anesthetist and I wanted to quote, help people. I was in love with this feeling, this feeling of, I would, I had a vision, I held a vision starting from 11 years old where I was standing on the bedside of a patient and just holding onto their arm and looking into their eyes and just loving them. And telling them that it would be okay. That was my version of being a nurse. And that's what I wanted to be. Do you remember where you were when you had that vision? Were you, was, it, was it a dream? Was it a, in church? Or how did you, how do you, what do you attach that vision to? Absolutely. I was standing in my family room. I was standing in the family room with my father next to me in his chair and he talked to me about my sister and the fact that my sister who had passed away, my sister passed away when she was 21 and her name was Tony and Tony had dreams of becoming a nurse anesthetist. And so my father shared that with me and I decided, oh, that's what I want to be. I'm going to do that same thing. I'm going to carry this on. And that's when I had the first vision of me by the, in the hospital at the bedside. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And then what happens next? You, you, you finish high school and then what? I finish high school. I'll, I'll say that I think I learned differently, right? So school was never a place that felt good to me. My grades were poor always. C and under was pretty much they were my grades. When it was time to go to college, my grades were so bad that I could not get into any college at all. So I went to community college for my first year out of high school to get my grades up so that I could join my friends in Atlanta because there was the great exodus from Detroit to Atlanta. Anyone from Detroit who could go to college or most of us went to Atlanta and all of my friends were there and they had left me behind and I, I got my grades up and the only college I could get into that second year was Morris Brown College. So I went to Morris Brown in Atlanta for a year and I was accepted to their nursing program. I stood in line for eight hours to register because that's what you had to do back then. There was no online registration. I stood in line for eight hours, get up to the front, and they tell me that their nursing program has just become unaccredited and I'm going to have to go to Tuskegee in my second and third year to, to go to nursing school. I cried. I didn't want to go to, I didn't want to go to Alabama. I just wanted to be there. So I ended up leaving left Morris Brown and got into Georgia State and had to take a year's worth of classes. The bottom line is this. I needed to get a A or a B in organic chemistry 
and microbiology in order to be accepted to the nursing school. And I got a C and I got a D. And that was the end of my nursing career. So let me ask you this. When you were graduating high school and getting into community college, did you feel smart or did you feel average or did you just feel like you weren't applying yourself? Like what was the, did you have positive reinforcement from teachers? Oh, you just need to work a little harder. What what did you feel about yourself academically and intellectually at that time? Yeah. What a beautiful question. I did not feel smart. I knew that I had vision. I knew that I had style. I I felt good, but no, I did not feel smart at all. I felt actually quite unsmart <laughs> to be honest. And no, it, it wasn't. And yes, I knew I needed to apply myself. I need to apply myself more because I, I didn't study so hard. But what the problem was, is that even when I would apply myself on those rare occasions, it still didn't really turn out right. So I just gave up. Well, you know what? I think I might be not telling the truth. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. I might. I think when Keep I look real, back, Tiffany. yeah, because I'm thinking, yeah, I think I say that, but I think it was twofold. I didn't want to do the work because it wasn't fun. Okay, it wasn't fun, and I didn't want to do it. It wasn't inspiring, and it didn't feel good. So I didn't do it. And when I say I learned differently, I guess what I'm really trying to say is what happened is once I didn't get into nursing school. I took off for a couple of years and I got into the music business. I was working in the music industry for a couple of years and that was fun. And I was like, oh, I'm really good at connecting people. I had, there's something here. And one day, even though I thought my life was going well, my father called me and he said, you're going to get a degree. And I don't care if you get a degree in cooking, but you're going to get a degree because my father had a sixth grade education. He's from Huntsville, Alabama, and he was born in 1921. And he knows the value of education and he, all he wanted to do was see me get that degree. So I went and I looked and I decided to study film. And when I decided to study film, it was actually a process. I thought I was going to be, I was going to do theater and be a movie star. And I went to theater class and I was a horrible actor, just only horrible. And when I decided to, I went to a documentary film class and my whole heart opened up. I knew that at that moment, I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. But interestingly enough, that same feeling of helping others, that same void that I wanted to fill of helping others and being there for others, that is what I felt when I watched documentary fil- films that were able to address issues, able to be the voice of the voiceless. And that's how I wanted, I knew I wanted to spend my life. And once I found that I got all A's. So I ended up graduating from college with a 4.0 because I loved everything I studied. What college was this that you graduated with a 4.0? Georgia State University. Okay. So you started off at Morris Brown. Mm -hmm. You went to the registration process. They told you the program wasn't accredited. And then you went right right over to Georgia State right after that. And then you Mm -hmm. enrolled in the film program at Georgia State. Exactly, exactly. And why, and, why, and it, it, Georgia State was the only college that would take you that wasn't a community mm-hmm. college? Is that why mm-hmm. Georgia State? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I would have loved to have gone to like Georgia or Georgia Tech or Emory. Like those were the smart schools. But Georgia State was, they accepted me. 
Right. And you had no mm-hmm. friends at Georgia State. You just, all your friends were yeah. in the Atlanta uh, University Center. Okay. Yeah, I didn't so, have any friends. So you kind of made the best of it then. You, you, it sounds like you put your head down. You really studied. I you did. enjoyed your classes that you took. You probably felt I smart. Did. I did. I felt smart. I felt smart for the first time. <laughs> and you discovered yeah. a love for documentaries. Yes. Yes, okay. yes, yes. So then what happens? So it changed my life because now I knew what I wanted to do. So I came to LA and when I got to LA, there was no such thing as a documentary industry. Why LA? Why'd you move to LA? I moved to LA. Well, a couple of things. I missed a little part. I was <laughs> I was six months pregnant when I graduated from oh, Georgia plot, State University. The plot thickens. You can't be <laughs> exactly. leaving that I'm, out. I was six months pregnant with this this little girl inside of me, and her father lived in Los Angeles. Now, I'm very quick to say that I would have come to Los Angeles either way because I wanted to be in the film industry, but I got here with him, and he and I lived in Burbank, and we were together, and this was pre-Michael Moore time, so this was before documentaries were cool at all. So I would look in the paper, in the one ads, looking for jobs at PBS, and all of this, and I really couldn't find anything. National Geographic. And then one day a friend called me and she said, I'm opening up a production company for music video directors and music videos. Would you come work there? And that is when my life took a completely different turn. So I found myself working in the industry working as a, an assistant to producers and directors, working on videos for Bone Thugs and Harmony and <laughs> all of this stuff. And it was cool. And then did that for about a year. And then I hooked up with an incredible director by the name of Dave Myers. And Dave Myers at the time was heralded as one of the greatest music video directors of that time. And we were perpetually in pre-production perpetually in production and perpetually in post-production. I remember his name associated with so many big musicians. Yes. Um, I mean, back in those days. From J-Lo to all of the Missy Elliott videos from back that back then. To, it was like um, Dave Myers and Hype Williams. It was back during that mm-hmm. time, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It was a very special time because this was the time of million dollar videos. And that doesn't happen anymore. Big concepts. Yeah. Huge concepts, big budgets. And yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. Now, how did you meet Dave? How did you meet Dave? I met Dave through my best friend, Chaka Pilgrim. And Chaka Pilgrim, who also is in the the music and film industry. And she said, you know, Dave Myers is looking for an assistant. You need to go meet him right now. And I did. And we were together and it was, we were a powerful team. And prior to that, were you financially stable, secure? Were you making good money? What was your financial situation? No, not at all. Not making good money at all. You know, I was an assistant, so it was barely scraping by. And I was a single mother because by this time, my daughter's father and I had broken up. And I was determined. I was determined to be somebody. Like, I was not going to let anything stopped me. So when I worked with Dave, I gave half of my salary to a live-in nanny 
so that I could be on call and do whatever was necessary to mm. excel. Wow. You know, quite interesting. So my mother, my, my mother, my, my daughter really, she really shared me with the world and she really supported me unknowingly in developing myself because I wasn't able to be there and be focused and be like, you know, the perfect parent. I was a good parent, but I needed help. I needed a co-parent to raise her so that I could go out and live my, my dreams and, and develop myself. What gave you that resolve to do that, to take that big step of getting half your salary away so that you could be fully available? My DNA. I come from two hustlers from Detroit, Michigan, two people who make it happen by any means necessary. And I believe I come from a lineage of people like that. And my father, there's no mediocrity. There's no room for that. It's be the best and do your best and and make it happen. Would you have conversations with him or who was mentoring you? Who was your, who was your go-to person to kind of talk things through? Cause that's a big decision. I'm sure someone is. kind of it talked is. you through that. No one. No, no one. No, I didn't. My father passed when November was six months old. And that was, um, and then my mother really just didn't have the, you know, she, I was, on the leading edge. And she had never been where I was headed. What she did was just my, she was just an amazing cheerleader. She believed in me. And that's what she gave me. She believed in me. It was quite remarkable. What was your spiritual foundation at the time? Very early on, when I was 21 years old, I was in an apartment or lived in these lofts and someone dropped off a book and knocked on my door and disappeared by the time I opened the door and the book was Celestine Prophecy. That's the first one I read. That's the first spiritual book I read, Celestine Prophecy. And so was it like 1995 or 1994? Exactly. That's the one that 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 turned me out. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, 
You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. Turned me out. And I read that book. And honestly, before then, I hadn't read many, many books. You know, I had read books only for college and maybe a couple of books here and there. That book changed my entire beingness. And what and the interesting thing about that book, which I'm sure you'll, you'll agree, it's not real. It's fiction. But when it touches your soul, for me, I decided that it was real. Because everything, every cell in my body awakened. And I decided that this was real and that I was going to live my life as if I could control the outcome. And for the next six months, basically for the next year of my life, I did that and it worked. And then the next book I read was Conversations with God. And then, you know, and then I was off and running. Right. That (laughs) that opened up the floodgates and it just all started coming in. Okay. (laughs) So I'm sorry, I cut you off. You were with Dave Myers now. And then you had a Mm -hmm. conversation that shifted things for you. I believe it was during that time or was it after that time? Which conversation are you talking about? That lunch conversation. About the kid in in Africa. Oh, yeah. yes. Okay, I don't want to. So working... I don't want to skip past another pivotal moment, though. So if there's something right. in between, you so need to let me know that. I'm working with Dave, and everything is is brilliant. You know, still struggling with money because it wasn't like my salary was good, but I was making, I was making an impact, right? Right. And I was learning a lot, and. I want to share something really quickly because this is really, this was a very pivotal moment. You know, Dave really believed in me and he thought that I was going to one day run a record label, which was not something I was interested in, maybe running a film company or something, you know, film production company, but he believed in me. This was a time when I worked with Dave Myers. It was the time when the bigger of a, if I I can say this, a bigger of an asshole you are as a director it was almost like the more credibility you had. I mean, if you, of course, your work had to be great. But this was a time when there was swimming work sharks, directors, right. producers. And, mm-hmm. you know, you had to really be hardcore to be considered to be great. There was a part of me that believed that I had to be that way. And I had come up with this idea to do MTV Music Awards parties for Dave. And they were like, they became a big deal. And so I was starting to have conversations with managers of A-list artists. I won't say any names. And I remember having this one conversation with a female executive who was a very powerful female executive. And she and I were going at it about this venue. We were basically in an argument. And the bottom line is that when I got off the phone, I had won, right? I was the biggest whatever you want to call it. And I had this feeling inside of me and I felt not well. And I remember saying to myself, is this the person that I am going to become? Is this my destiny? And this is, you know, the after reading Celestine Prophecy and knowing what I knew about life. And so I saw myself behaving in this way. And I thought, I don't know if this is the person that I want to be. And shortly after that, my friend Saul Williams, one of my best friends, had come back from a trip in Africa. He had been gone for quite a while. 
And he had run into a young amputee boy who was a refugee from Sierra Leone. Oh, it was Saul you had that conversation with. That's so Saul. interesting. Okay. Yeah, it was Saul. And so we're sitting down for lunch, you know, welcoming him back. And he's telling me the boy story of this young amputee boy who's from this place called Sierra Leone. Because I had never heard of this country called Sierra Leone that's in Africa. And he tells me about this little boy who is wonderful, amputated limb, but wonderful and and says, oh my God, you know, you're from America. We love America. We love hip hop. We love Jay-Z. We love, you know... And then they said, why do they put their diamonds in the camera? Do they know what is happening to us? Mm. And the little boy's question, he was referring to music videos and the diamonds that swing in the camera. And, you know, and he wondered, do they know that diamonds come from our land? And do they, are they communicating with us? Is that, you know, and what I found out at that moment is that 33% at the time of the world's diamonds came from a little place called Sierra Leone. Mm. And that this war that had maimed this child was funded and fueled by these same diamonds. And when I heard this, I was never the same after. And I decided that I wanted to film a documentary that followed the path of a diamond from the earth all the way to the consumer. I originally wanted to tell the story of the fact that diamonds came from Africa and we as African Americans really had no connection to that. That was really the story that I wanted to tell. And it evolved because I had, you know, great producer and director that I was working with. And so it evolved into what I just shared but yeah, that's when my life changed and I quit my job as Dave's assistant and I thought that it would be very quick that I would be able to get money for this documentary and that it would be a easy, swift thing and it ended up taking two years to get the funding for the film and two years later, what are you going to say? I just have a couple of questions before we get to that part. <laughs> please, please go right ahead. Okay. So you have this lunch with Saul. He talks about the diamonds, right? Where's the lunch taking place? It's at the Pancake House on Sunset. Okay. I can't remember the name, but it's, it's it not Pancake, not like the original Pancake House. Right. Or, but it was a pancake house that they, all they serve is pancakes and it's really good. And it's on Sunset. I remember you yeah. You go down into the parking lot. It's like a da- it's like downhill type of a yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It used yes. to be a um, it used to be a comedy club. I've been there several times. Anyway, okay. You you walk out of that place after that conversation, right? You're getting your car. Yeah. Mm, when and this, I can think of nothing else. Right. So when you're thinking of it initially, are you are you initially thinking I'm going to quit my job? I'm going to make this a full time thing. I'm going to go to Sierra, or are you thinking? I'll do this one day. It'll be a passion project that I'll do. Maybe I'll, you know, maybe let me think who I can get to help me with my little hobby documentary film. Like how serious are you at that moment upon inception about oh. that project? Detroit hustle had kicked in. I was like, this is it. I'm, it's on. I was like, I'm out of here. I was like, let me, I'm going to get the money tomorrow. I'm going to figure this out. And I think within two weeks, I was sitting down with Dave Myers talking to him about it. But it took a while before, maybe you know, a few months before I quit my job. But I was on it. Was that a tough 
thing for you to do to quit your job and, and put all your faith into this, this calling that you had? No, it wasn't. Interestingly enough, it should have been. But I'm such a dreamer. I'm such a dreamer. And I'm such, I follow my bliss. And that's something I've always done. And so I had this pull. Everything in me was saying, go this way, go this direction. And I followed wholeheartedly. Yes, I was afraid of not having money, but somehow I knew it was going to all work out, which it didn't necessarily. <laughs> it didn't necessarily all work out, but I thought that it would. Were there any signs that kind of reaffirmed your your choice that you say, okay, no, that happened. This is clearly, I'm supposed to do this or no. I think the sign for me is that once I started to work on the treatment, it started to pour through me. And so all of a sudden I have this, this body of text, this, this deck, this beautiful piece of work that outlays what I feel inside. And I was able to take that around and, and pitch it and, and it was challenging. You know, there weren't immediate yeses as I thought that there would be. But I just felt every bit in my heart that this is what I was supposed to do. And yes, doors did feel like they started to open. I'll tell you one thing special that happened, you know, as I was, and you know, also while I was doing this, I was doing a lot of reading and opening my mind and learning to meditate and really trying to figure out how to open the doors for myself so that I can live a life that I wanted to live because money was always a struggle, always a struggle to pay my rent, always. So we're in this two year, you quit your job, you feel good about that, but you think it's going to happen quickly, but then it takes two years. What are you yes. doing to fund your life in these two oh years? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh odd jobs. And then, then ultimately I'm walking my daughter to school one day and a fellow parent is walking alongside me and she's like, what's going on? And I'm just telling her about, you know, it's really tough, financial trouble. She was like, come work for me. And she's a casting director. Mm. I'm like, I don't know anything about casting. She's like, you'll be great. She was like, come work for me. So I go and I work for her. She, you know, puts me on a salary. It's really great. You know, a lot, I was, it was such a relief because I was going to be able to pay my rent. And I was like, this is kind of cool. You know, her, her casting was strictly actors, but even that it was remarkable to see the behind the scenes and to see the gift that actors, tr good actors truly have. And I really, I dug it. Hmm. So that's what I was doing when I finally got the funding to go to Sierra Leone because I worked on my project at night and I worked with her during the day. Did it come down to that? Like you literally didn't have rent for the next month when you, when you met her and had that conversation? Absolutely. Like, absolutely. Like I probably was late that while I was talking to her. Hmm. Yeah. It was really, it was tough. What was, was your plan in, the, in your mind? You were just going to go into debt or what, what were you going to do? It's so funny. I was going to pray. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to pray. And I was like, I'm going to find the laws of the, I'm going to master the laws of the universe. That was really my plan was to master the laws of the universe and to will money to me. And honestly, I did. I did. You know, I would write affirmations. I would do full moon this. I would do full, you know, 
new moon. That, I was like, there has to be another way. Because the interesting thing, I would never go, I didn't want to do something that I didn't want to do. Like I wasn't going to go make $10 an hour somewhere because I wouldn't pay my bills anyway. So I believed and I trusted that somehow something would happen for me. And and it did walking down the street. And did you tell her this is just temporary? Cause I'm really, look, I'm really in the process of getting this documentary funded. Absolutely. I did. I told her that. And then, so as I told her that, and I'm practicing my, my laws of the universe, one day I'm driving down the street and I get a phone call that Kanye West wants to talk to me. I don't know Kanye. I, a friend, uh, Jay Brown, knew of the work that I was doing in Sierra Leone and was always a supporter. And he managed or he, it was the president of Rock Nation at the time. And he told Kanye about my project because Kanye had done a song called Diamonds Are Forever. And he had done, no, he had done a song called Diamonds or the, the Diamond or the Rock or something. And it just so happened that he had met with Q-Tip and they were like having this like come together meeting of the minds. And Q-Tip said to him, do you know what is happening with diamonds? Do you know where they come from? Do you know about child labor? And just gave him like a insight as to what was going on. And then Kanye was really interested to learn more. And so somehow Jay Brown said, you know, you should reach out to Tiffany. So one day I find myself driving down the street and then 12 hours later, I'm sitting in this in the studio with Kanye. So you're broke, not able to pay your rent. And then next thing you know, broke, you're sitting- not able to pay my rent. And I'm, now I'm in the studio with Kanye. You're in the studio with Kanye. <laughs> and, then, and then I, and I, pitch my everlasting heart out because when I tell you that I ate, drank, and slept everything Sierra Leone, uh-huh. I could, I could, I would tell you, I could tell you about the history of Sierra Leone. And so he- This is the loved. classic example, by the way, of opportunity meets yes. uh, prep, preparation. So yes. you, cr- you literally generated this, this quote unquote yes. lucky moment. Okay. Yes. So what happens? So I inspire him. He's like, I'm down. I want to be in the documentary. So now all of a sudden I went from not having anything to Kanye wants to be in the documentary. And he also changes the name of the song to Diamonds Are From Sierra Leone based on this meeting, does a documentary and cut to, I'm so excited. Everything is great. He's going to be in the documentary. And then I meet his mom. Uh He introduces me to his mom or he has his mom call me. Because he tells me his mom doesn't want him to go because she's afraid for his life. Oh, wait, wait, wait. So is this your first trip to Sierra Leone? No, I don't go to Sierra Leone at all. I'm still, I haven't even gone yet. Now I'm just, I'm, I just get him on board. And then he introduces me to his mom because his mom is afraid for him to go. And he's like, you got to talk to my mom. Wait, but, but well, I'm sorry. You, you guys were planning to go for the first time to That's Sierra right. Leone. We were, we were planning to go together for the first time. So your documentary with him attached, you now are able to raise money and get people interested and get a crew and everything. So he was the catalyst for, for really taking it to a level of it manifesting in, into a tangible project. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So now we have Kanye West. Exactly. And so 
ah, things are moving. We get a production company on board. You know, I have a producer on board. I have a financier on board now. And then all of a sudden, I talk to his mother. And his mother is like, Donda. Donda is West great. Day. Yeah, Donda was amazing. And she, I talked to her for 45 minutes. I will never forget. I was walking, pacing up and down the house, telling her everything. And she was like, sounds amazing, but I don't want him to go. She was that's like, so, it's so what? interesting that he let her make that call. Yeah. Yeah. And so she was kind enough to make a $5,000 donation to the work that we were doing and, you know, contributed towards whatever we were going to do. But she was like, he's not going. So that was that. So we had to just kind of move on. Did you try to convince him? Did you try to call him back and say, hey, look, <laughs> I talked to your mom. She's not, <laughs> she's not hot on the idea, but what do you think? What do you mean? Can we remember the kids? Right. Remember the kids. <laughs> I did not call him back. I don't think. I think it was pretty clear from that conversation that it wasn't happening. And it made me sad because it was the beginning, honestly, of um, the journey of understanding that our community, our Black American community, uh, the fissures between us and our African brothers and sisters, it was the beginning because it happened repeatedly over the years. It has happened repeatedly over the years. So, yeah. What happens next? Do you end up going anyway or what's the next I, move? Yeah. So, okay. So we, we go, we go. And when I tell you the excitement, when I got my ticket to Sierra Leone, and this was back when tickets were still paper tickets. So the ticket comes and it's super thick because it's like two layovers and all of this stuff. The ticket comes in the envelope. And I'm so excited that every day I put the ticket in a certain place and every day I just go look at the ticket to make sure it's there. <laughs> I just go look at it. Cut to, I have to send my daughter to Detroit to live with my mother. Oh, you were because going for a while. I was going for a while, three months. Or I think it was a month the first trip and I came back and went back for another three months the second trip. Yeah. So you quit your job and everything. This was this uh -huh. was gonna be you're all in. At so this I point. quit my job at casting. You know, they had a go going away party for me. I'm going to Sierra Leone to film my documentary. This is my life's dream. And I get off of the plane. So cut to we land in the first place that I step in Africa is Senegal, because we had a layover there. I step in Senegal and I am just like, it's like being in a dream and it's wonderful and it's beautiful. And I have to stay there overnight and the women look like gazelles and the men are gorgeous and the food is wonderful and the music and it's just incredible. And then the next day I take a flight to Sierra Leone with my crew. But when I get off the plane this time, my hair stands on end. Because the smell is a smell that is ancient. The people, every face that I looked into looked like a member of my family. There was my Uncle Charles. There was my Aunt Easter. There was my Aunt Minnie. There was my grandmother. Everybody was standing in front of me, taking my bags, taking, you know, helping me through customs. 
And I thought, wow, like I just felt like I was home. And so that entire trip, there were butterflies all around me, kind of everywhere I went. (laughs) And that was like, that's what I felt like. That was my father joining me on this journey. And I felt the feeling of when you, when you fall in love or when you find that you're in love and that feeling that everything is beautiful, everything is just more colorful, everything is funny, everything is possible. That is the feeling that I was feeling the entire time I was in Sierra Leone. And we make a decision to go to this area called Kono because Kono is where the war lasted the most, the longest, sorry. That's where the war started and it lasted the longest. And we found ourselves in Kono and the people there were beautiful. We actually went to six different villages so that we could find a child who spoke good enough English to feature him in the documentary, to be able to tell his story of living in a family of minors. And we found this little boy. And after this is after six villages, we stumble into this village. And the moment we walk, we ride up into this village, I just felt like this is it. This is it. And we interview hundreds of children. And the school in the middle of this particular village wasn't really a school. It was a building that had once been a school, but had been burned down during the war. And now was a shell of a building that had plastic tarp from that on the top as a roof and had maybe one or two benches for 40 or 50 children. Most of the children were kind of kneeling down or squatting down. And what I saw that was remarkable, there were five volunteer teachers and these students had their hands outstretched, fully attentive to the teacher. They were there to learn. They were there to learn and do nothing else. And I had never seen such a thirst for knowledge like that. And so this money that I had raised outside of my film budget, the money that I had raised that I thought that I was going to, you know, help this child or that child, I used that money to put a new roof on the school, to cement the floors, to make all new benches for the students, the children. And the next thing you know, we have this school and that is how shine on Sierra Leone was born. Okay. So a couple of questions. Mm -hmm. This was your first documentary, right? Very first documentary. So how, how, how did you know how to film a documentary? I mean, (laughs) well, it wasn't just me. I had really cool quote, my director, my producer, they were all there with me. So it was a meeting of the minds and we were coming together to do this. And I didn't know how to shoot a documentary, but together we were all working together. It was fun. And I mean, the footage is, it was so beautiful. And then something happened. The director and the financier didn't see eye to eye on a a particular subject and it broke down and basically ended the documentary. And so I found myself after having dedicated my four years of my life to this and being in Sierra Leone and living there for three months, I find myself without this documentary. While you're there. uh, 
while you're yeah, in Well, it happens. It happens while we're there. And, you know, the breakdown happens while we're there. But we don't know that it's over yet. We just know that I just know that it's a, there's, a, there's an issue. And I simply didn't have the tools to lead us out of that dark place that we were in. You know, this, this fallout that had happened. I didn't have the tools at that time. I wasn't the woman that I am today. And so when I came back, I was quite fearful and I was leading with that fear. And the financier just basically held on to all of the footage and it never got done. You also mentioned that you raised some money to do something give away while you were there. I believe it was $6,000 that you had raised, correct? Yes, exactly. So I had raised $6,000 and was going to use that money. I mean, I wasn't so great with, I thought, well, why don't we get all you new uniforms for the children? Oh, like the worst idea in the world. Right. So my director, the financier, actually, he was really great. He was like, why don't you invest this money into something that will actually last, like put a new roof on the school, so, you know, do that. And that is how I had the wherewithal and, and the the wisdom to invest that money. So you had to, did you, how involved were you, were you in that decision? Did you have to meet with contractors to figure out like how to do that? Or you just gave somebody money? No, this is so great. I went to the United Nations, the post, the United Nations post, and I asked them if I could borrow a truck. And they lent me a truck and I went to six different villages to gather enough wood for the roof. And you drove to six different villages? <laughs> yeah, but I was in the passenger seat. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you know, drivers always drive in Africa for the most part. Yeah. So drove to six different villages. But I got to tell you, I mean, it was hard work. Like, let's not, even though I wasn't driving, it was hard work and it is hot. And it was just really, really in, it was uh, highly, highly involved. And when I came back into the village, the entire village spilled into the streets, singing and dancing, saying they always say they're going to come back, but they never do. And for my crew and I, I will have to say for all of us, it was probably one of the most remarkable moments of all of our lives. And I feel comfortable speaking on their behalf because none of us could contain the tears. And it was such pure appreciation, pure appreciation, pure love. And I think it's, it's what we're made for as in this human shells to uplift each other, to love each other, and it was that perfect intersection of humanity. Right. It was so beautiful. Now, when I think a lot of people hear the, the name Sierra Leone, a lot of people associate it with Ebola. So that's something that I don't know if it was happening before or after you were there. But can you just give us a quick little nutshell synopsis of the Kono, the war that you referred to, I believe it was with the British over the diamonds and, and Ebola crisis. And how was that playing out when you were researching it and when you were there? Yeah. So when I arrived, the war had been over for approximately five years. 
and you can still fill the remnants of war. You would drive down the street and there was a, a, you know, a tanker truck turned over on its side. Houses were burned down, just like the school that I, our school, that was everywhere. There was entire communities that the homes were burned or bombed. That was still in the air. And people were, at the time that I arrived, we arrived, they were trying to rebuild their, their lives. So after having worked in Sierra Leone for, let's see, this was 2006. And so if 2006, no, it's eight years later, I think. I don't know. But it <laughs> wasn't, like, it wasn't like, happening it, when you were there initially. It was, everything was. No, not at all. There was no Ebola. There was no Ebola, nothing like that. And in 2014, I'll just say, instead of trying to add, 2014 is when Ebola hit. And so that was a very long time. And Ebola lasted from 2014 for about a year and a half. And it was devastating. And I was, by this time, you know, Shine on Sierra Leone was very, has deep roots in the community. And so the first thing that when Ebola hit, they called, they called me and they said, what are we to believe? What are we to believe and what are we to do? And we talked about, we basically went from house to house. And I say we, as in our administrative team on the ground, went from house to house, explaining what Ebola was and helping them understand how you would contract it. We helped to create, we basically created these packages that would allow a home to be quarantined for 21 days and be healthy and have all of the supplies and medicines and food that they needed during that time. So it was a very interesting time and we leaned in and it brought us closer together. And in our community, in our village of Bongama, I am proud to say that we had zero cases of Ebola and we were in the middle of the hotbed of Ebola in all of Sierra Leone. Mm. So at that point, you had been going back and forth several times. You had sort of adopted this this school, Mari Lotus. And, mm-hmm. uh, Mari Lotus. Mm-hmm. Mari Lotus. And is this your full-time thing now or what's, what's happening back in LA? Because you're no. still living in LA. I now, once I came back from that first trip to Sierra Leone, I called the casting director that I used to work with and I said, Lisa, I would love to get my job back. And of course, someone had the job at that time. And she said, why don't you try Dan? Because Dan actually does real people casting. And so I, at this time, was working as a real people casting assistant and associate. And that was the work that I was doing. And that was going to be, unbeknownst to me, my life's one of my career. And that I would start my own casting company. Well, your funding mechanism so that you could continue putting attention on Sierra Leone. So you're obviously raising money. And now you have personal stories to tell about your experiences, correct? Of course. Absolutely. I'm not sure exactly what year we're in now. Where should we go? Now we're after you've you've started your foundation, your nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So so now you're running a nonprofit. Shine on I'm Sierra Leone. 
That's right. So now I'm running Shine on Sierra Leone and I'm putting my heart and soul into it because the documentary did not come to pass. And I decide, you know what? Maybe I was actually meant to do this work and really get my hands deep in the ground and do the work that's actually going to create the transformation. And as much as as beautiful it is as it is to do a documentary, this is the real work. So I put my heart and soul into that. I'm a casting associate. I'm doing that on the side. And But my life, my blood is in Sierra Leone. And my idea is that I'm going to make sure that every child within this village has access to an education. So that's what I set out to do. And about two years into this, I hit a wall. You know, raising money is not easy, but there was something else going on. I hit a wall and it was a wall of depression and I couldn't put my finger on it. And I felt like if something were to happen to me, this would all fall to pieces. I started to ask myself, people would say, what you're doing in Sierra Leone is so beautiful. And I felt disingenuous and I felt like a fake. And I would just say, yeah, thank you. And I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And I asked, I went back to my spiritual self and my spiritual roots. And I said, what am I missing? I asked the universe, please show me what I am missing. And also, please show me what I can do in my life to live the life of my dreams. Because yes, I was casting as an associate, there was still a struggle each month to pay my bills because I have a daughter, you know, I have a daughter and it's, I was a single mother. So as I'm asking this, I start to read all different kinds of, you know, books and I'm meditating and I'm doing all the things that I need to do to try to open my connection to the spiritual world to understand how I can live a better life and how I can understand what this feeling is inside. And one of the things I decide to do is to, after reading something, I decide to shift my mindset and to only focus on what felt good and what I wanted and to put no attention on what didn't feel good and what I didn't want. And I did this Jedi mind trick style. Like that meant that I would, I had to let go of certain relationships that were rooted in complaining about a certain thing. It meant that I had to find true forgiveness in my heart for November, my daughter's father, and to love him in spite of what I felt about how much he contributed to her life. It meant that I diligently had to focus on the beauty of life and the beautiful aspect and perspective of all things. When I did this truly wholeheartedly, within six months, my life was very different. And within a year, my life was unrecognizable. Mm. From that one decision. From that one decision. This is where my life begins again. And next thing I know, my casting the casting director I work with is like, Tiffany, you're really good. You can actually do this on your own. I have too many jobs. So why don't you take this job and do it on your own? I was petrified. I couldn't, I was like, are you, and I just, I'll never forget those first jobs. I was so afraid, but I was so excited. And that beautiful man 
continued to give me his overflow of jobs until I had built my own casting company. And today, my casting company is second only to his. Wow. So he was one of your angels. He was my angel. One of my angels. Absolutely. I I get emotional thinking about him because that just doesn't happen. It's not something people just, I mean, it's so easy to try to keep it all or he could have just hired me at a higher rate. He could have always kept me under his thumb. He gave me a career. A funding mechanism really <laughs> to keep, keep the Sierra, <laughs> to keep the Sierra mm-hmm. Leone thing going. So what's happening back in Sierra Leone at this, at this point in time? Cause running a nonprofit is mainly raising money, right? So that's, I'm assuming that's <laughs> yes. what's happening in LA. You're raising money so you can go back and make sure these kids are getting everything that they need in, in the school. Gosh, this is such an interesting, complex story because I think about it. One of the things I didn't share is that I have these two angels, two other angels come to me and they say, okay, so I don't know if I really want to tell this story. It is quite an interesting story. (laughs) You have to tell it now. I know, right? Okay, so when I was out there raising money for this documentary, right, and I'm out there pitching my heart out, this is before Kanye, I'm going to say one of the godfathers of hip hop was introduced to me and I pitched my heart out to him and he said, this is amazing. I want to do this with you. And he says, okay, I'll be in touch with you soon. Cut to a month later, I don't hear from him. And then all of a sudden I get an email of someone sending me a treatment that's very similar to my treatment. It even has some of the same words that my treatment has. And on it, as the executive producer, is that same person that I met with. And so there was a competing project happening along the same timeline as I was creating, producing, we were doing our project. And since our project fell apart, I had to watch this project come on air. And it was debilitating. I was very, very depressed. And I felt like a failure. And then all of a sudden, after this happens, and I've started Shine on Sierra Leone, and I've forgotten about all of that, the producers of that project, who had nothing to do with this, you know, the gentleman who, they were just two independent producers, they came to me and said, we want to work with you. And we want to help you with Shine on Sierra Leone. And so they came on board and we became a dream team and they helped to raise the money. And so the funding that was raised went to fund now at the initially it was 5,000 microloans, the primary school. They helped to secure funding for us to do, to launch four computer literacy centers throughout the country housed in the oldest in academic institutions in West Africa. Yeah, it was beautiful. So I had angels all over. Okay, so during that period of watching this other 
documentary take off. Did you ever think of giving up or throwing in the towel? A hundred percent, a thousand percent, almost every day. W- yeah. What kept you in it? Some undeniable and undescribable pull because I had no business starting an organization. I had no business continuing to run an organization. I could, you know, it was a struggle for me to live my own life. And even when I was, I had my own casting company and even today it is still a struggle, but there was something that I couldn't put my finger on that felt like I could not give up. It was the stories. It was the impact that I was able to make. It is a powerful thing to know that you can be the difference between whether someone learns, whether someone is able to eat and to have that person with all of their gratitude share with you how you impacted their lives. It's deeply moving and it's not easy to let go of. It's not easy to turn your back on. I know the difference that we make in in these children's lives and the lives of their parents. Hmm. My dad used to say this thing. He said, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. So I'm sure (laughs) being on the ground, you have to like, you have to be on the ground there in order to make sure that everything is going in the way that according to the the plan, whatever they're telling you, right. Did you notice any, anything as far as the distance and how that played a role in your commitment or lack thereof? Oh, of course. I mean, well, not my commitment. I had such an incredible right hand. Her name is Kariatu Konde. And Kariatu was, you, you, I had to choose to trust. And that choice turned out to be a good choice. And there, but there definitely have been times that because I'm not there, things didn't turn out the way that I expected to or wanted to. But we have persevered through that for sure. Um, but it is not easy not being on the ground. And I wish so often I wish that I was independently wealthy and I could actually go there and live there or go for six months at a time because I know that the impact would be, could be even greater if that were the case. And I mean impact as far as it's the little things. I call the, cha- the type of work that we do, it's micro work. When someone hasn't learned something as simple as time, like not how to tell time, but time, like the difference between five minutes and 15 minutes. And when you're running a business or being in charge of something, just being able to navigate and and manage. It's a beautiful story that I tell about. Um, I have a rest, I have a, a, a hotel there now that I invested in after Ebola that was abandoned during Ebola. And I took it over because it was the hotel that I had stayed out, stayed during my most of my time there. And it just was the heartbeat of the community. And to see it abandoned just broke my heart. So I invested in it because I wanted to invest in business in Sierra Leone. And so we have the best food in all of this, all of Kono. It is, we are known, we are <laughs> revered, we are renowned. We have the best food. And we have this pizza and the pizza takes, you know, sometimes 45 minutes to make or so it could take longer. And one time I had a call from one of our patrons because my number is there for anyone to call if there's anything that's needed. And he's telling me, and this is somebody I met while I was there. He said, Tiffany, the pizza took two hours today. 
And I was like, wow, okay. So we have a staff meeting. We're on WhatsApp and the entire staff is there, chef, manager, and everybody. And we're talking about this pizza. And so we're breaking it down. I said, okay, well, let's break this down. How long does it take? Because by the way, we don't have electricity 24 hours a day. We only have like electricity during the evening hours when it's dark outside. So things like that we take for granted, like a freezer, you know, we don't have those things. So we have to make everything fresh. So we said, I said, so how long does it take to take the chicken from the freezer, uh, the freezer or the refrigerator and to saute it and take it from the bone? Like everything is fresh. And my chef says it takes five minutes. And I said, really? Does it takes five minutes to cut the chicken from the bone and actually saute it and season it? It takes five minutes. I said, okay. So we're going on and we're continuing on and we're talking about how long it takes to knead the dough and everything. And we come to a point where I had just, you know, they have an iPhone that I had just given down them down there. So we, I said, I'd lead them to the timer on the iPhone and I say, press start. And so we continue to talk. And after five minutes, I go back and I say, okay, so stop the timer. I said, what does it say? And he said, it says five zero zero. I said, okay, so this is five minutes. In this time since you started, is this how long it takes to take the chicken and saute it? And they say, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? No way. And so we have this amazing opportunity to understand that they don't know how to time. And it was so beautiful because I felt, and so then we went ahead and we timed everything in the kitchen and they were blown away mm. by having this understanding of <laughs> time. what time it takes, right? So then we put on the menu that it takes 45 minutes, you know, to make pizza or an hour or whatever it was and to please order it in the morning or whatever. So we know. So this little bit of education, it meant so much to me. Like I'm here for that. I'm here for that. Like I'm here to share this with my family in Sierra Leone who didn't have that very basic training that I don't even remember learning how to tell time and learning how to navigate or to gauge what five minutes is versus 20 minutes. But I have that knowledge. Wow. And what a gift to be able to share that with someone else. Wow. So just to wrap things up here, because this is such a great story. I'm so excited for everyone who's listening to this on the podcast. So your mother gives you, essentially gives you your calling in your name by naming you after Tiffany's, which of course sells diamonds. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly, right? Your, si that? your sister sort of sets you off on a path to becoming a nurse, her spirit, her vision or whatever for you as you were standing at the bedside that day when you were 11 years old. And you kind of have the first sort of stage of how this whole thing is going to unfold. And your dad gives you the hustle to keep saying yes, mm -hmm. to keep going and to keep trusting that it's all just going to work out. Mm. So yes. it's amazing. And then the dress up and the entertaining the adults, of course, the entertainment industry was going to become very pivotal 
in your life. It looks like your whole life was pretty much laid out <laughs> exactly as it needed to be, right? Well, the interesting thing, the most interesting thing of all of it is you're absolutely right. And then to tie this all together in a nice, neat little bow, after having been doing the work that we do in Sierra Leone for 10 years, I decided to have my DNA test done. Mm-hmm. And I found out that my entire maternal lineage is from a little lady in Sierra Leone <laughs> and that I am the very tribes that I work with. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. That's incredible. Following that bliss, following my heart has led me to, led me home. Yeah. And every single perceived failure was another step towards what ended up happening which is amazing yeah. as well. Let me ask you this, Tiffany, if if there's another girl from a place like where you're from who's got this inner calling to do something to help people, what what, what advice would you give to him or her to mm. take the next step? <gasps> know that your liberation is bound up with the liberation of anyone that you want to work with, help or get involved with. I believe that the only changes that we can make in this world are the transformations and the changes that we make within our own worlds, period. So I know that the work that I do in Sierra Leone is the macrocosm of the microcosm of my home. So if I am having any breakdowns in relationships with my family, with my friends, I rush to figure that out, to fix it, to heal it, because I know that that is that same gift that I can share and take to anywhere I want to help in this world. I love that. Well, I want to acknowledge you for your bravery and your determination and your trust in life and, of course, your passion in putting your attention on the things that that make you come alive and, and ignoring the things that don't. So thank you for that example, Tiffany. And uh, thank you. Life. How can people get involved with your mission if they would like to? Oh, I'd love to send you to shine on And we have a really incredible donation platform that allows you to sponsor a child for an entire year. So for $35 a month, you can sponsor a child's education, daily or incredible nourishment, and health care for an entire month for $35. So you can do that monthly or you can do it an annual donation, but that's what we really encourage people to do. Beautiful. And then if people want to bring you in to share your story, how can they find you? They can also find me. Oh, they can find me at Tiffany at shineonsierraleone.org. And on social media? On social media, Tiffany Persons, and on LinkedIn, Tiffany Persons, and Instagram. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Light. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Tiffany Persons. I'm so grateful to her for sharing her story of determination, and hopefully it inspires somebody listening to this to take one small leap in the direction of your goals, your dreams, your vision for yourself regardless of if you think you're ready. As I've said before, the final step to being ready to embark upon your path 
is leaping before you feel ready. And to hear more stories like Tiffany's, make sure to check out our archive and take a couple of seconds right now to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes with more stories about other people just like Tiffany who took a leap and it led them in the direction of their purpose and usually against all odds. Also, take a few seconds to rate and review the podcast if you haven't already. And you can find links to everything Tiffany and I discussed in the show notes below. Thanks again for listening. And I sincerely hope that hearing Tiffany's story will help you to have an inspired rest of your day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.